be opening your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We are making our way through the book slowly but surely. We are still doing the book of burdens. We're still working in, in that right now. And I believe we're around about chapter 20. Let me pull my notes out here just to be sure. We started looking last week at chapter 20. Uh, this is the burden of Egypt, and I don't what your what your particular version says. Some versions will say Cush. Um, that's the that's the country of Ethiopia, and so that's uh, that's where the that's where this burden uh, is addressed to. Is addressed to uh, the burden of uh, Egypt and to Cush. Uh, and so what we see here um, symbolically in this, uh, in this prophecy from Isaiah uh, is the fact that there will, be, um, there will be an invasion of this group. Let me see if I can get to the right, Let's see if I can get the right slide. Okay. All right. So um, Sargon, we've moved from Salamancer. This is the Assyrian Empire. We talked about this north of the... City of Nineveh, above the, the solid line, is the uh, kingdom of the Medes, uh, between the Black Sea and the Caspian. We know the Medes come down. Uh, they're mentioned in chapter 13. Uh, they're mentioned again here. Uh, Edom is also mentioned, as well as uh, the Medes, and they will come and they will dismantle the Assyrian and then the, or the Babylonian Empire, which the Assyrians uh, fall to. Uh, then the Medes will take over, and, and we have all that, and that's, a lot of that's in Daniel. And so what we're dealing with in chapter 20 is Sargon. Uh, Sargon is the son of Shalomancer, uh, who we read about or talked about earlier, and his um, offspring is Sennacherib, who we will mention uh, in a little while today as we talk about this. So chapter 20, uh, we have pretty good dates for this uh, prophecy of Isaiah uh, due to some of the historical Assyrian uh, inscriptions that we have. We know that Sargon invaded this part of the world, uh, Palestine, Israel, if you will, in those days, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel, Palestine. Uh, we know that he invaded these areas twice, once in the ninth century, uh, once in the ninth year, sorry, the ninth year of his reign, and the second in the eleventh year of his reign. Um, if your version in chapter uh, 20, verse 1, in the year that the commander came to Ashdod, uh, does someone have a different word than commander? Tartan. Tartan? Yeah, the Tartan is a commander-in-chief. If you will think of a, a Tartan as... Uh, I guess in today's parlance would be uh, like an army chief of staff, or the army's, the, army's the, the overall head of the commander-in-chief of the armies. Um, so he is sent by Sargon in the ninth year of his reign, and in the eleventh year of his reign, actually Sargon himself comes and leads the troops. Um, so th- we know this to be the initial invasion. Um, Egypt and Ethiopia at this period in time are united under one king, um, they are uh, they are united under one king whose name is Shabak, and uh, Ashdod is the city uh, that's talked about here. Uh, he came to Ashdod. Ashdod is a uh, is a city along. I want to say it's along the coast. Uh, it's a Philistine. It's a Philistine city. It's one of the most ancient Philistine cities, and you can read about it in Joshua 15, uh, verse 47. So he rises against, uh, or he comes up against Ashdod. He captures it. And then Isaiah is given some very uh, cryptic, 
guidance from God that he, that he tells uh, Isaiah in verse 3, uh, or in verse 2, uh, go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off of your feet. And so, uh, and so he did, going naked and barefoot. Now, he was not technically naked. Um, the, the translation here is not the best. Um, you would have an outer garment that you would wear, and under that you would have a loose, like a breech cloth, that you would wear underneath that. So he took that off. So technically, in the parlance of the of the people of that day, he, he was technically naked, but he still had this breech cloth on, and he walked about barefoot. The Lord said, "Even my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Ethiopia." So the king of Assyria, Sargon, will lead away the captives Egypt, Egypt and the exiles of Ethiopia, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, uh, to the shame of Egypt. Remember, by this time, Egypt is a, is in its decline. Egypt is no longer the power that you think about when we think about Egypt. We think about the pyramids. We think about the pharaohs. Um, the, Egyptian, the Egyptian world in these days is, a, uh, is an empire on decline. And it's such an empire on decline that over time Judah and Israel will capture Egypt. And then they will, they will uh, their last week's lesson we talked about five cities that will speak Hebrew. Five Egyptian cities will speak Hebrew. Um, so that's that's what will come in the future. And, and certainly as we look down through time, we see the establishment in Christ's time. We see the establishment later on uh, of the Coptic Christians in Egypt. And so that that group has its uh, has its early beginnings in uh, in this this period in time. And there's really not there's I think there's six verses in this chapter and really not uh, really not a whole lot. Uh, but again, we're talking here about as we have in every instance when we talked about these burdens, we've taught we're talking about the death of a nation. We're talking about how a nation rises, a nation comes to prominence, a nation subjugates another people. In this case, it's almost always the house of Israel. It will be the house of Judah at some point when the the Babylonians come, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes them into captivity. But we're always talking about the death of a nation, the death of a nation through being taken into captivity. And so as we start to think about this, we we want to juxtapose or start to think about the death of an individual Versus the death of a nation, or contrast the death of an individual versus the death of a nation, and so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, when we get into the next the next few chapters. So chapter 21, not spending a whole lot of time in 20. Uh, chapter 21 is chapter 21 is the uh, is the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, the wilderness of the sea, or the burden of Babylon. Uh, this is a this is a highly poetic chapter from Isaiah. Uh, it is probably, if you remember and go back to chapter 13, chapter 13 is also uh, a burden or a, a, a warning to Babylon uh, that Babylon will fall. And, and in 12, we saw that uh, we saw that Babylon in 12 and 13, we, we saw that they would fall. This is kind of a this is kind of a corollary or an add on uh, with respect to the fall of the great Chaldean with the great Chaldean capital. Um, in, in the in this instance, the. Uh, the tone is much less harsh and it's more uh, sympathetic. He's uh, he's more um, he's more torn up, I guess you would say, by uh, this fall and how this how this fall will occur and how these people will uh, will not be able to be saved. Um, the desert of the sea. Uh, I don't know what your version has. Uh, th- this version, the New American Standard, has the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. What do some of the other translations say? The desert of the sea. Okay, so the desert of the sea. In this instance, how, how do we get how do we get to Babylon when Babylon is way down there along the the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean is way over there? 
how do we get to the wilderness of the sea? Well, the wilderness of the sea is the Euphrates. And along the Euphrates, you've probably seen pictures in a history class, the, the, the Euphrates is a large river that, that sends out tendrils. And among those tendrils, on those tendrils are areas of land. Uh, in this modern picture, those lands have been developed. Well, in, in uh, early time, when Babylon and Assyria were, cap- were capitals of this area and, and ruled this land, these were, these were deserts. And so uh, this is considered, this is called, in a poetic sense, uh, the burden of Babylon is the wilderness of the sea or the desert of the sea. And he talks about this vision that's been shown to him. Uh, the treacherous one still deals treacherously. And so and the destroyer still destroys. So this is, this is Babylon. Uh, going up, Elam, lay siege, Media. And these are the two countries that will, you know, that Media, the Medes especially. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. And so he's talking there about in a time to come where the the Medes will come from the north and they will they will uh, assume this area or, or consume this area of the country and they will take the people. So. You know, Isaiah is is torn up about this in verse 3. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered, I cannot hear, so terrified, I cannot see. My mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table. They spread the cloth. They eat. They drink. Rise up, captains. Oil the shields. For thus the Lord says to me, go station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, trains of donkeys and trains of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I'm stationed every night at my guard post. And so now the troop of riders come, horsemen in pairs. And one has answered, one answered and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all of the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. And so throughout the 20, Throughout the 21st chapter, this, this pre-chapter, which we saw in 13, um, still, brings to, still brings to mind the fact that this country will be brought down. And so as we talk about the, as we talk about the, the death of a nation, as we talk about how a nation falls, um, you know, we, we, contrast, we can contrast that between um, the sadness that we see for the loss of an individual. Um, every nation, according to Daniel... Every king is brought up, God puts people in power, and he takes people out of power. And God brings or forms nations. And a nation is God's creation, just as the individual is. And so the nation, however, is a far more elaborate work than the work of, a, than the, than the work of an individual. It, the, a, nation is, a nation comes into a people's mind or comes into God's mind. It comes into a design. Um, there is wisdom behind putting a nation together. If you think about our nation, for instance, and the forethought and the design that went into making our nation, the things that were required for planning how each one would mirror the national, uh, would mirror the national character. Uh, certain people have certain talents, and those talents are put, to get, put together and put to use for the good of the nation. So anytime we lose... Anytime we lose a portion of that or we lose a part of the nation, it is a sad thing to witness a nation's demise. Now, it's sad to lose an individual. We all here in the past year, throughout the pandemic, we've all been touched by those that we've lost. Some people very, very close to us in some instances. So 
you know, Isaiah feels the sadness here, and, and he says his loins are filled with fear. Uh, the pangs are those of a woman in travail, so agonized that he cannot hear, so terrified that he cannot look there in verse 3. Um, the sadness to which this calamity or this, this fall of a nation, this destruction of a nation, um, is really twofold if we think about it. The sadness of the fact that we know that an individual is gone on one hand, but how much more for a nation? It's very sad when we lose an, an individual. We're sad in our hearts. Our families are sad for the loss of that individual. But how much more for the loss of a nation? And a nation that is in peril, you know, is a nation that is gone, that is gone forever. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of these nations, Rome, all of these, all of these cities, all these city states, all of these nations are gone. They're gone from the face of the earth. Um, an individual is removed or an individual dies, but they still exist. They, they exist on another plane. So we know, those who have, we know those who have died, those who have passed on, but they still exist in our hearts. We still remember them. We still, we still see. I look out in this class, and I see where people used to sit. I, I, I see where you know, folks that were here every, every Sunday morning for this class would sit on every Sunday morning. Those people are gone. So they still exist in my heart, but not so as a nation. As time goes, when a nation falls, the nation is forgotten and only to be relegated to the history books or to the written or spoken word does that nation. Uh, there's no healing. There's no healing of the bruise. Nahum says in, in chapter three, verse 19, there's no transference of a, of a nation to another sphere. And like there is with the individual, a Christian dies. They know that their you know, that their place in Hades uh, is in the bosom of Abraham. Uh, so their night of the night of fear for an individual, uh, you know, the sadness, well, the sadness of, of losing an individual, but but existence from existence passing into non-existence like a nation would do is hard to recall. It's like the sun. Uh, it's like the sun setting never to rise again. Then there's this, this, the sadness of a circumstance. So there's the sadness of the fact that we've lost someone. Then there's the sadness of the circumstance. And this really, I think, speaks more to our nation today. The end of a nation comes necessarily by its own destruction. Sometimes from without, but most times, how is a nation destroyed? From within. And Rome was destroyed. Rome was not destroyed from without, although it had many foes that came up against it in the latter years that caused its, caused its collapse. What was, the, what was the cause of the Roman? What was the cause of the Roman demise? It was collapse from within. Uh, it, was a, it was a collapse of morals. It was a collapse of, of, uh, of things not being such that a nation can survive. You know, the analogies to our nation are frightening. Our nation has drifted far, far away from God. And, you know, the, the, fact, that, uh, the fact that a nation, uh, you know, loses uh, its borders, the fact that a host can invade its borders, can, can spread itself uh, over lands and trample down crops in, in the, in the uh, in the, in the instance of these ancient nations, uh, you know, they, they invaded their borders. Uh, they took over the crops, depriving the people who lived there of their food. Uh, they trampled down what they did not use so that the people would starve. Uh, they exhausted its grain anyways. They consumed all the cattle. They burned the towns and villages. Everywhere was ruin and desolation. So injury is added to injury. You know, fruit trees are cut down, Isaiah 16, verse 8. Uh, all of the works of art in that, for that nation are either stolen or taken or destroyed. Uh, good land is purposely marred with stones. Um, we see the salting of the earth in Carthage by the Romans uh, to make crops never grow there again. That's, again, the death of a nation. Uh, 
you know, if inanimate things suffer, like the fields and the crops, how much more so the animate objects, how much more so the people. Um, you know, people are taken into captivity. Uh, beasts of burden are impressed uh, and worked to death. Horses uh, are, you know, forced to, to labor. Uh, cattle perish for want of care. Beasts of prey increase in the, the, the rise of, of what we call inquilins into the, into the, into the, uh, the lands. And so, you know, Second Kings 17:25, it says they, the uh, the population lessens and becomes a terror to the scanty remnant. And so we we see that these people move through, but the demise of, of an individual compared with the demise of a nation uh, is truly one that, uh, you know, if if a, if a group or a nation has gone away from God or does not embrace God, um, it's a uh, it's a very it's a very sad thing to see uh, because we know that God brings uh, good things to the people who love him, who worship him, uh, whose nation calls their leader God or who calls their God uh, God, and those who don't, those who rely on human. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The reliance on man versus the reliance on God will always bring you to an untimely end. Um, so what we're seeing here is we're seeing an untimely uh, demise of many of these nation states because of their reliance on men and not a reliance on God. Uh, Oracle concerning Edom. These are these are these are many uh, many uh, burdens within this larger burden. Uh, an oracle, oracle concerning Edom, uh, verse 11. Uh, an oracle concerning Arabia. Uh, the thickness of the night, uh, obviously we look to uh, one of the maps and we see that east of Israel, east of the kingdom of Israel, east of uh, Judah, is a vast wilderness. It's a vast desert that's there. And so we see that the, there's, there's many times that we see that they will come from the east or they will come from this area of the north, uh, the north and the east, from this area out of, out of Arabia. And those are certainly the Assyrians that, uh, that, will, plague the, that will plague the people. So chapter 22 uh, is an oracle concerning uh, Jerusalem, and that covers verses 1 through 14. And then 15 through the end of the chapter, we talk about a single individual, which is an interesting conversation. Uh, the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. So what we see in, uh, what we see in chapter uh, 22 is that in verses 1 and 2, uh, we see all these individuals, they're crowded together on the housetops, in a state of boisterous merriment. And so the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision, what is the matter, what is the matter with you now that you all have gone up on top of the housetops? You are so full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with a sword, nor did they die in battle. So what we have here is a, a city that's in the midst of a celebration. They're on the rooftops. There's boisterous laughter. There's, there's, uh, there's celebrations. But then if we look at verse 8, if you go down to verse 8, we'll see, uh, well, we see in verse 2 and uh, we'll see in verse 5. Uh, For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, a day of subjugation and confusion in the valley of the vision, a breaking down of walls. And so what we have is we have some people who are up on the rooftops and they're celebrating and they're partying and they're eating and drinking and making merry, as it says later on in the chapter. And their rulers have fled. And they've all been captured. And so there's this host, this, this host that's outside of the walls in verse 5 uh, that's going to break down the walls. And so preparations uh, have been made uh, outside the walls. A foreign army is threatening the town. But preparations have been made for resistance, verses 8 through 11. 
Uh, he's removed the defense of Judah, and that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters from the lower pool. You counted the houses in Jerusalem. You tore down houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, and some of these pools are still in existence today. You can, you can see them when you, uh, when you tour uh, the Bible lands and, and around Jerusalem. But you did not depend on him who made it. Again, this reliance on man other than a reliance on God. You did not depend on God who made it, nor did you take into consideration the God who planned it long ago. Therefore, based on all of this that's gone before, in that day the Lord of hosts calls you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving of head, and to wearing of sackcloth. This is what God calls us to. He calls us, he calls his people to the wearing of sackcloth and ashes. He calls us to wailing. He calls these people to the shaving of their heads, to wearing of sackcloth. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to come back. But the sad fact is, in verse 13, instead, there's gaiety and gladness. Killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Truly the Epicurean philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry. And this is, this is a thousand years before Epicurus even had the thought. These people, are, these people are eating, they're drinking, they're making merry because tomorrow we die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. Thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, says, or not forgiven until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So we get down to verse 15 and our focus changes from the city of Jerusalem to an individual within the city of Jerusalem, part of the ruling class. And the man's name is Shebna, uh, in verse 15. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, come, go to this, go this, go to this steward to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. All right, Shebna is a Syriac name. So Shebna is probably someone from Damascus. So he is not a Jew. But he is at the right hand of the king. And he is in a very powerful position. He would be like, uh, I don't even, I guess the vice president. And he's in a very posi- powerful position with the, the ruler of the country. And so Shebna has some problems. And God has some problems with Shebna. And so God says to him, what right do you have here? In other words, you're not from around here. You're from Damascus. You're a Syrian. What are you doing in the house of Judah? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? And so what we see in, in the case of that, and, and we'll go back to, we'll get to Sennacherib in a minute. These slides are out of place. There we go. Um, he went and made himself a, a tomb. And typically these tombs are carved out of the side of, uh, of the hill around Jerusalem. And they, inside the tomb there will be chambers, uh, sometimes as many as 12 chambers. And the bodies would go in there and then they would be sealed. Uh, they would be sealed from, from the outside so that... People could come in, and there would be uh, other places for the family. So Shebda is making his himself at home, building himself a tomb uh, here in the in the land of Judah. And God wants to know what right do you have here, and whom do you whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself? You who hewn hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, old man. And he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into the vast country, and there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be, your shame of your, the shame of your master's house. And I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. Verse 19. So if you would now, go to Isaiah 36. Turn over to Isaiah 36. Make a note in your margin of your notes. In Isaiah 36... <clears throat> 
Isaiah 36, uh, verses 2 through 4. I have it here somewhere. I know because I made a copy of it. All right, so Isaiah 36. Somebody that's, somebody that's there, Isaiah 36, verses 2 through 4. Uh, read, that, read that for me, please. All right, so we see in verse 3 there of that reading. Thank you, uh, Harold. Uh, in verse 3, then Elakim, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household. So now Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, has taken over the household. Now he's the head. Now who's the scribe? Shebna. So Shebna has fallen. Just as Isaiah prophesied, Shebna has fallen from his position of power and been replaced by Elohim, uh, the, the son of Hilkiah. And now he is in the place of prominence, and uh, Shebna is merely the scribe. So what we see is the fall of this man from, from his position of power. And, um, oop, down verse 15. And I will depose you from your office again. And if you go further, uh, I will depose you from your office. I'll pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day, Isaiah 36, that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. There you go. Isaiah 36, verse 3, that's all come to pass. Shebna is nothing more now than a scribe. He just takes notes. He's not uh, the big big kahuna that he was. Um, he's been brought down, and God has, uh, has prophesied, or Isaiah has prophesied that through God. I will clothe him with your tunic, tie your sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. And this is, we're talking about Eliakim here. Uh, then I will set the keys of the house of David on his shoulders. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of the, vas- of the vessels from bowls to all the jars. And so you stop at verse 24 with that prophecy concerning the fall of Shebna. Chapter 25 uh, chapter 22, verse 25, is probably one of the more, you know, scholars call it one of the more enigmatic verses in Scripture. Notice that it begins with, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, and it ends with the Lord, for the Lord has spoken. And so here's what it says. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. And so what we see here in this is, and we'll come back to Shebna in just a second. I really don't think a whole lot more needs to be said about him. But this is, this is interesting when you read about this because this is, this is, this is one of the most obscure messianic prophecies. And so what we see here is in that day, not the day of Shebna's fall, because that occurs in 36.3, over in chapter 36.3, but some other day. So if it's the day of, of Christ's uh, earthly mission, then in that day the peg driven in a firm place will give way. And so the Messiah, in Daniel 9.26, it says the Messiah was cut off. And so if the load, what is the load that is hanging, and the load hanging on it will be cut off if the load hanging on Christ is the sins of mankind, then in that day when he is cut off, when he is, when he is killed, 
he will have he will have given that sacrifice. So the Lord has spoken that there's a double what's called a double attestation at the beginning at the end of this verse. It's the mark of a vastly important announcement contained within it, which is in fact the germ of the great doctrine of Christ's earthly mission. And so that you know that has <clears throat> a lot of scholars take a lot of different. Uh, direction on that, but I think if we use scripture to balance that, we think about the fact that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, or he, he bore our sins on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24, um, and by his death, his burden was cut off. By his death, this burden of sin for us was cut off, and you can find that reference in 1 John 2 and 2, and 2 Corinthians 5.19. Again in Ephesians 2.16 and again in Colossians 2.14. So there are four instances in the New Testament where it says by, by Christ's death, the burden of sin for us was cut off. And so I think that, I think that enigmatic verse, not so enigmatic when you take it and you, you look at it balanced against, the, balanced against the rest of Scripture. Chapter 23. <clears throat> we now look at the burden of Tyre and the burden of Sidon. And both of these cities are... <clears throat> Excuse me. Both these cities are uh, coastal cities. Uh, here's the city of Tyre. Obviously, it's an artist's rendition. This is the this would be the Old Testament uh, version of what Tyre would look like. If you're familiar with Tyre and Sidon, you know at a point later in history that Alexander the Great does what? What does he do to this city? You remember, Andy? Well, he completely destroys it, but he can't he can't reach it. So what does he what does he do to reach it? Right, he can reach it by land. So he literally builds he literally builds land from the mainland out to the island to make it a uh, to make it a uh, uh, to make a causeway, if you will, for his troops to move back and forth. So he deposits tons and tons of earth to make this causeway from the coast out to the island of Tyre, so he can lay siege to it. Alexander the Great did. This is the city of this is the ancient city of Tyre today. Um, it's a coastal city. Obviously, and it is the one uh, that is referred to in this chapter, and it, it has a very uh, has very much a sailing orientation. Um, all of you know this from being in school, either high school or college. You know that a city cannot survive if it does not have what? Cities need water. Some of the biggest cities in the United States are on the edges of water. You look at the Mississippi. Look at the Missouri River. Look at some of the other rivers, the major rivers in the country. Look at the major rivers of the world. The only one I can't think of that doesn't have really any major cities built on is the Amazon. And, you know, they're slowly but surely destroying that, you know, with the, with the, the forestry uh, cutting down all the trees there. So major rivers of the, in the continents are the places where cities grow. Look at St. Louis. You know, it was a, it was a, it was just a small, it was just a small town, but trans, Mitting goods up and down the river, in or in and around. So the oracle concerning Tyre starts out. He starts out of Tyre. Whale, O ships of Tarshish. Now Tarshish was further up the coast. Um, it was uh, north of. If we go back. Oh, do we have our map still? Yes, I think we do. We still have our map. Yes, Tarshish is. If you see Cyprus, there's a notch. There's a notch right there on the F and Fertile Crescent. There's a notch. That's Tarshish. And you see Tyre down there right under Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon are two of the larger Phoenician uh, or Philistine Phoenician cities. And so what we see in this chapter, we see the burden of Tyre. It's split up into three stanzas. It's split up in three stanzas. The first stanza is stanza one, chapter 23, 1 through 5. 
And so uh, the second stanza is down to from 5 to 9, and the third is uh, from 9 to 14. Now, this whole chapter has an undertone of sadness, uh, commiseration. Uh, Isaiah is viewing Tyre as a fellow sufferer from the house of Judah, persecuted and oppressed by the Assyrians, uh, which this city, obviously being a coastal city with the harbor that it had, uh, was obviously a place where someone who wanted to conquer someone was able to take goods out, ship ship goods in and out. Uh, be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, your messengers cross the sea. And we're on many waters, the grain of the Nile. So they're sailing from Tyre to the Nile. They're sailing from there to Egypt. The harvest of the river was her revenue, and she was the market of nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor, excuse me, reared virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. The report of Tyre. Uh, pass over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. So <clears throat> he goes on and on in this about uh, their destruction and what's going to come under Sargon. Uh, first, he conquered the country, and then later on he actually took the title of king uh, of Tyre. Uh, so he was, the, he was the one who uh, conquered the lands that Isaiah is speaking of in this chapter. Uh, after an interval, Tyre falls uh, to, various, to various invasions. that um, rises from the ashes, it seems like, every time. Cities that are built on the water have the tendency to do that because they can resume their former occupation. They can get back to uh, the business of trading, the merchant cities that, they, that we can all think about. Uh, and once more making great gains, they will, they will devote themselves, as Tyre did, uh, to the service of Jehovah. As Egypt went, so went Tyre. Um, so we see that the uh, we see that the the many philanthropic and praiseworthy enterprises that Isaiah talks about uh, in verse 18, uh, her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. So the reward of serving God <clears throat> is mentioned here. So as we look at the aspects of of this, as we come to the end of chapter 23, and we begin to look at chapters 24 through 27, which are judgments against the whole world. So, what we've looked at here is we've looked at um, we've looked at uh, we've looked at uh, <clears throat> denunciations or, or uh, burdens of specific countries, and starting in verse 24, we start with. Um, we start with the denunciation of the world. So if we look at, if we look at the oracle concerning or the burden concerning Tyre and Sidon, um, there are various aspects here of divine judgment that are going to come from God. And so first as you look at, divine judgment is certain. That's the first thing you want to see. All of these countries were given divine judgments, and those divine judgments are certain. God does not say... He's going to do something, and then he doesn't do it. If he says he's going to destroy a country, he destroys that country, and he destroys it in the way he tells the prophet. So the duration of time, the duration of time for the destruction of a nation is no guarantee that destruction is not coming. So there can be a time when things are really good. You know, things are looking up. Everybody has a lot of everything. To look back in the days of, of uh, Solomon, when everyone uh, had 
you know, rich attire. They all lived in nice houses. They all had all they had everything going for them. Uh, you know, the the country, the the house of Israel was in really good uh, was in a really good place. So you know, this continuance, this continuation of comfort is not a guarantee or a pledge that it's not going to be disturbed or it's not going to be destroyed. Um, you know, there's a there's a uh, there's a false sense of security that comes from uh, that comes from relying on men and not relying on God. Uh, judgment falls on uh, these these nations. Judgment will fall upon God's God's chosen on God's chosen timeline, not on man's chosen timeline. Uh, we look at Isaiah 23:7. Tyre was a joyous city whose antiquity was of ancient days, and the nation and the men who lived in that, the men and who women lived in the nation, were you know apt to think that hey, you know everything's going good for us. We've got great merchant ships here that go to Tarshish, and we're trading with Cyprus. We're trading with all of these different places, but. Um, you know, this, this, uh, this duration of good feeling for them begets a false sense of security. Um, they should have perceived that their reliance on men and their reliance on physical things was something that came from God. Um, so, you know, the longer that these men live in an unvisited transgression, the longer that penalty that becomes due, uh, the sooner that that retribution is going to arrive. Um, there's no ordinary defense against the divine judgment. There's no defense that we can give uh, against the divine judgment. The commerce and the consequent wealth of Tyre that you see in verses 2 and 3, uh, you know, the resplendent nature of her, her enrichments from Egypt, all of these things, her trading with Tarshish and Cyprus, these things couldn't save her. So, you know, these ordinary defenses that, that they would put in place would not save them. The high station to which Tyre had mounted, their social position, could not save them. It uh, means nothing to God. means nothing to God. Social position means nothing to God. Uh, what you've attained means nothing to God. It's nothing, it's nothing to the righteous God uh, that she was esteemed a crowning city, she's called in verse 8. Uh, the merchants there were princes. They were, they were rich. They had lavish lifestyles. No defense that we can or that they could raise would avert God's judgment when the hour is ripe for the sentence to be executed. Wealth can't buy it off. In other words, you, you, can't, you can't buy God off. Judgment is coming. No rank can interpose its influence to avert judgment. In other words, no matter how highly ranked you are, you're going, you're going to be judged by God. You can't buy him off, and you can't say, well, wait a minute, you can't judge me. I'm a king, or I'm a prince, and I'm very wealthy. So, you know, the, these, these defenses won't, won't work. They won't shield us from, from the blow when it comes from God. Um, there's no barrier there's no barrier that you can put up that can't be swept away when God arises uh, to his judgment. Uh, science can't teach us how to elude it. Uh, there's nothing that we can do. We just have to, uh, we have to submit to God's divine judgment. 23.2, be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, your messengers across the sea. The silence there is bringing the curses, the clamors, the reveling, the, the, the accusations, the innuendo of ungodliness, uh, God strikes uh, silence uh, through all of those. And so there's a fullness, there's an efficacy, there's an end product to all of what God has promised to do. There, there, was, there, shall, there also they shall have no rest, uh, verse 12. Um, be sure your sins will find you out um, is one of the verses that we... Uh, we often quote, the penalty of a man's sin will find him out no matter where he goes. He cannot escape it. Uh, Jonah attempted that. He attempted to flee from the presence of the Lord. 
And no, no matter where a man flees, uh, he cannot flee from the blow of the chastisements that are coming from God. No change of scenery, no change of society, no change of occupation uh, will shield you from the ultimate or the, uh, yeah, the, ultimate, the uncompleted correction of, of the divine. And so as we, look at, uh, as we look at finishing this up, there are a couple of things that, that I want to show. Uh, we've talked about Shebna, and uh, we've talked about his fall. Uh, the prophecy against uh, Jerusalem was a particularly interesting one. So if you'll go back to verse, uh, chapter 22 just for a couple minutes, I want to look at something as a segue here. And, uh, some scriptures I want you to write down in the margin of your Bible if you're taking notes. Um, Isaiah 22 verses 1 through 14 and talking about Jerusalem has as a part of its uh, of a corollary scripture that we're going to look at here in just a second a part of its corollary scripture second chronicles 32 verses 3 through 5 but more importantly we know that we know that the chronicles and the kings are parallel stories and so what we read in the book of Chronicles and what we read in the book of Kings often are parallel, but you get more, you get more detail out of one than you do the other. So in 2 Chronicles, we're talking there about Assyria, the Assyrians besieging Jerusalem in Isaiah's time. And that's what this is talking about in this chapter. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of corollaries. So the one I want you to, I want, the one I want you to look at and the one I want to read is uh, 2 Kings chapter 19. Verses 1 through 37. So let's go over to 2 Kings and read that. Remember, this, all, this, this 2 Kings 19 is, is, is a companion to what's going on in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. So let's go over to 2 Kings chapter 19. And we'll begin reading at... Uh, and you notice if you have headings in your Bible, the heading in my chapter of 2 Kings 19 is, Isaiah reassures Hezekiah. Well, here's Isaiah. So Isaiah 22 and the burden of Jerusalem and the Second Kings 19 are parallels to one another. So we want a little more information on what's going on. Then we go back over here and read in Second Kings. So these kind of things, you can go back and forth between Isaiah, Second Kings, Isaiah, and Second Chronicles. You can go back and forth between these. And you can pick up a lot of the details. So here's the detail. When, he, when King Hezekiah heard this, okay, Sennacherib, Sennacherib has come. I know where he is. There he is. Sennacherib has come. And so he's laid out, um, in the previous chapter, he has laid out, um, uh, he, he, has, he has been, uh, charted, starting in verse uh, uh, 13 of chapter 18, Sennacherib attacks Judah. Okay? So you can read that portion. That's, that's all. This is the part where Hezekiah goes and he goes to the king of Syria, of Assyria and says, okay, I'm going to give you a bunch of gold and I'm going to give you a bunch of silver. We want to become a vassal state to you. We don't want you to come in and attack us and take us over. We just want to become a vassal state. That's the end of chapter 18. And so here again, we see the reliance on men as opposed to the reliance on God. He goes to the, he goes to the king when he could just easily turn to God and saved his money. He could have gone to God and God would have defended him. Well, he ends up doing that in a roundabout way at the very end. So here's what happens. So, you can read about that in chapter 18, where he takes the uh, where he takes the gold. And again, we have Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. We talked about him with regard to Shebna. Um, and so uh, Sennacherib has all these things. Uh, Rabshakeh has says all these things. So, so we get to chapter 19. 
Chapter 19. When King Hezekiah heard all these things, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Okay, he's moving, he's moving now in the right direction. He knows that what he did in chapter 18 is wrong, and now he's heard this and he's understood that he needs, he needs to, he needs to come back to the Lord. So he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe. See, there again, Isaiah 36 and 2 Kings 19 are both in accordance. We're seeing the same thing. Shebna the scribe, the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. Okay, we're, 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 in Second King, we're in Second Kings and we're talking about Isaiah. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, the day of distress and rebuke and rejection for children have come to birth. There shall be no strength to deliver. Perhaps, verse 4, perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshanka, whom his master, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant. There's that remnant. Offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Sennacherib, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, for, with the, for which the servants of the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And we know what happened to Sennacherib, but that's at the end of the story, so you've got to stay around to hear that. So Sennacherib now is going to defy the Lord. He's going to defy God. Rabshanka returned and found the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, fighting against Lebna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say concerning Tirhakana, the king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, this is, this is Sennacherib talking, do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of Sennacherib. Behold, you have heard what, the, what Sennacherib has said. He will do to your lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which your fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Refsa and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharavim and of Hena and Ivan? These are all kings. These are all kingdoms and kings that Sennacherib has overthrown. And so he's telling, he's telling, you go back to your king and you tell him, you take a look at what I've done. You take a look at the mess that I've made of these other places and these other ones that I've conquered, and that's what's coming to you, because your God, your God's just deceiving you. He's not going to do the things that he says he's going to do for you, because. I'm, I'm Sennacherib, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of business. So Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. He went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. So he's on the right track. He's not trusting in men anymore. Now he's trusting in God. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone, all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has devastated the nations and their lands, and they have cast their their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand of all of the kingdoms of the earth that you may know, you, that may, they, the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone art, O Lord, our God. He's on the right track. He's turning to God. He's not turned to man. 
He's now turned to God. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word of the Lord that he has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against who have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Remember them on the housetops? having a good time, partying, and not listening to what God tells them, this is, the, this is what he's talking about. You've haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you've reproached the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I come up against the heights of the mountains to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down all the cedars and the choicest cypresses, and I entered its furthest lodging places in its thickest forests. I dug wells and drank foreign water, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard... Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities, fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, the inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and the green herb, as grass on the housetop is scorched before it is grown up. But I know, God says, you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. And because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle on your lips. And he's going to make them captive. And I will turn you back to the way which you came. This, then this shall be the sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant, there's the remnant again, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root upward or take root downward and bear fruit upward. And that's a messianic prophecy right there. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant and out of the Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord shall perform it. Ah, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Syria, Sennacherib, he shall not come to this city. Or shoot an arrow there, neither shall he come before it with a shield, nor throw up a mound against it. And these mounds they're talking about are these, are these huge mounds that they built at the edge of the, at the, edge of the city's uh, walls. Uh, these, uh, I can't think of the term that they're using now. They're, uh, the, the Romans did it with these, uh, with these big rampart builders that they would roll up to the side of the building. Well, they'd use mounds of earth uh, to get, and he says they're not going to do this. They're not going to throw up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So, what's the culmination? Verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out. And we don't know the angel of the Lord here. Is it the same angel of the Lord that went through Egypt, killing the firstborn? We don't know. That was the destroyer. Usually when we read the angel of the Lord, that's usually the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. He came one way. He returned the same way, God said. He would return home to his home in Nineveh. And it came about, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adrimelech and Sherezazer killed him with the sword. Those are his two sons. Those are his two sons. 
His two sons killed him with the sword. They escaped into the land of Ararat. They escaped into what is today Armenia, that portion of uh, eastern, uh, eastern Europe. They escaped into the land of Ararat, and Eshardon, his son, and Eshardon, his son, became king in his place. And so what we see here is we read Isaiah, and we read these burdens that are going to come to these countries, and we can go to other portions of Second Kings, Second Chronicles, we can go to these other places, and we can, read the, we can get the detail. Because it says you're going to fall. It says, all of these, uh, it says all of these things that are going to happen to it, but you can put a lot more flesh on this. And when you talk with people, it's a lot easier to talk to them about this. And certainly, again, while the Bible is not a historical, it's not a history book, but it does faithfully record historical events. It does faithfully record things that we read now that we know took place. And we know these, we know all these things that happened. So, um, it's just a couple minutes before the hour. Um, we're still going to get to, we're going to go to 24, uh, starting next week. Um, and that again, 24, 25, 26, and 27, God now begins judgments not on specific kingdoms, but judgments on the whole world, on the whole earth. And so, uh, you know, we see in the beginning of 24 where the Lord uh, will lay the, the earth waste. He will devastate it, distort its surface, and, and scatter its inhabitants. So, you know, while we've had special denunciations of burdens or woes against nations like Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, uh, Syria, and Damascus, Egypt, and Ethiopia, uh, Judea, Tyre, uh, now these denunciations take more of a broader uh, type thing to envelop, uh, envelop the whole world in the next four chapters. Uh, the world at large is the general subject, uh, but these peculiar people still maintain a marked and prominent place as spiritually leading the country. And uh, the world at large will be impacted by this small, will be impacted by this small remnant as the seed line of Christ as that continues uh, on toward the, the end of this, uh, the end of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So we'll pick up there next week with the denunciations on the whole, whole earth. So reading next week, if you've not done that, it would be 24, 25, 26, and 27. And then I believe 28, let me check, there's one, there's one in your reading list that's just one chapter. Yeah, let me look at that. So we're still in section uh, 6, consists of denunciations of woe at the world at large. Uh, 7 is 28 through 31, and then there's one that only, is only 8 verses. So that'll be an easy one for us to get to. Yeah, uh, limited to the first eight verses of chapter 22, but that's a messianic. That's, the, that's starting the large portion of messianic promises, which the second portion of Isaiah deals ex- uh, exclusively with. So uh, we'll meet again next week, good Lord willing, and we'll start there in chapter 24. Thank you.